You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Greetings, my friends. Welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is the second and final part in our series on the Lost Franklin Expedition. Let us get started. Last time, we left Sir John Franklin and his two ships, Erebus and Terror, at Beachy Island in the Canadian Arctic Archipelago, just as the ice was breaking up in 1846. Three men had died the previous winter, but the crews would likely have been eager to get out of their winter quarters, which had probably lasted upwards of eight or nine months including three months without any sunlight. So, with the ice releasing its grip on the expedition's vessels, it was time to continue the search for the Northwest Passage. Franklin and his ships would head southwest from Beachy Island, going about 90 to 95 miles, and then directly south into the big glob of islands that you see on the map that make up the Arctic Archipelago. The ships would go between two large islands, Somerset Island and Prince of Wales Island, the channel between them today called Peel Sound. Much of this area had never been visited by Europeans. Erebus and Terror followed the channel south, then veered southwest when the ships passed Prince of Wales Island and the water opened up. At this point, the expedition had made about 350 miles since departing Beachy Island, and as summer waned, it was here that Franklin made a critical decision. There was a large island in front of Franklin, King William Island, and he had to make the decision to sail along the western side of the island or the eastern side. Franklin chose the western side, and it would be a fatal decision. By going west, the ships were heading into waters that were rapidly freezing, and the ice from the channel to the northwest was pushing directly into their path. If they had gone east, the waters on the eastern side of King William Island were usually milder and free of ice longer. I compare this to standing outside on a cold, snowy, windy day. Let's say you have open fields all around you, and in the middle of the field you have a house. If you stand on the western side of the house... The wind, which tends to blow west to east, is going to blow directly at you. Snow will hit your face and drift up around you and pile up against the western side of the house. But if you go to the eastern side of the building, you're protected by the house. The wind and the snow are still around you, but you're not getting smacked in the face, and the snow, going west to east, is not piling up against the eastern side of the house. This is the kind of situation that Franklin and his ships were facing. The eastern side of the island would have provided a windbreak of sorts, The western side of the island was an open field, in this case an ice field, where the wind and the cold and the ice pushed against you with nothing for protection. So if Franklin had gone on the eastern side of the island, it would have allowed the ships to keep going south, and perhaps have reached the Canadian mainland that year or the next. Also, with the water freezing later on the eastern side, this would have meant better access to game, such as seals, walrus, and fish. 
Fresh meat would have provided not just food, but nutrition, such as essential vitamins like zinc and iron. So, instead of going down the eastern side of the island, Franklin headed west. A short time later, about 15 miles off the northern tip of King William Island, Erebus and Terror would be captured by the ice. The date was September 12, 1846. Trapped out on the ice pack, the men of the fleet would not have been able to hunt or fish, and the threat of the ships being crushed by the ice would have been ever-present. Now, before we yell at Franklin for making the decision to head west of King William Island, we should know that no one realized that King William Island was an island. In fact, the maps of the time called it King William Land, believing it was a peninsula of the Canadian mainland. Franklin probably believed that if he had gone east, he would have headed into a bay, a bay that he would have been trapped in once the ice came. So again, his decision was understandable, even if, in hindsight, deadly. Now a moment about the ice that the ships were now stuck in. The ice we are discussing is not just the water around the ships freezing up. This region is fed by a flow of water and ice from the north and northwest. It flows down channels, pushing glaciers and old ice with it. The result? You end up with massive amounts of ice, and not just pretty flat ice like you see on a lake or a stream. It's ice mashed together, pushing up 30 and 40 and 50 feet high, creating a terrain which at times could be like a blinding white desert littered with ridges, boulders, and mounds of rocks. Thus, trying to cross it on foot was a treacherous and time-consuming endeavor. So, it was September 1846. Erebus and Terror were locked in the ice pack. But on the positive side, the ships had provisions for at least two more years. And no doubt everything was done to get the men through the winter as healthy as possible. Now, nothing is known about the winter of 1846-47, but it would have been brutally cold out on the ice. And the men would have been crammed into two ships with nowhere to go and nothing to do. All the problems encountered the previous winter, frostbite, lack of fresh food, malnutrition, and a hundred illnesses, would have only grown worse and the results of the long winter would be revealed the following year. In the spring of 1847, when the sun was returning to the north, the expedition sent out at least one party of men to scout what lay ahead. These were called sledge parties. A big sled was loaded with supplies, and a group of men would haul it over the ice and snow. Not an easy thing on the ice that we have just described. We know that on May 24, 1847, a party of eight men, led by Lieutenant Graham Gore, departed the ship heading for King William Island. They would have been looking for anything to help the expedition, such as open water or game. Now, a quick note. Lieutenant Gore and his party would not be the first to come to King William Island by foot. In 1830, an expedition under John Ross had been trapped in the Gulf of Boothia, roughly 120 miles east of King William Island. That spring, Ross's nephew, James Clark Ross, led a team west, crossing land and sea, and reaching the eastern shore of King William Island, or King William Land, as it was called since no one knew it was an island. James Clark Ross had then traveled all the way to the northernmost point of King William Island, a rather remarkable feat which I want to cover someday. Ross called this Victory Point, and here he built a large cairn. A cairn is a big stack of rocks, sort of like a pyramid. In the polar regions, men would build them as a marker for others to spot from a distance. They would typically leave messages in the cairn. This is something Franklin would have done if he had left a message on Beachy Island. Anyhow, Lieutenant Gore reached King William Island and found Ross's cairn at Victory Point. By the way, you can see these locations on a map on our website, explorerspodcast.com. So at Victory Point, the northernmost tip of King William Island, and at another cairn to the south at a place now called Gore Point, the lieutenant left identical notes, one of which survives to this day. It said, quote, HMS ships Erebus and Terror wintered in the ice 
in latitude 70 degrees 5 minutes north and longitude 98 degrees 23 minutes west. Having wintered in 1846-7 at Beachy Island in latitude 74 degrees 43 minutes 28 seconds north, longitude 91 degrees 31 minutes 15 seconds west. After having ascended Wellington Channel at latitude 77 degrees and returned by the west side of Cornwallis Island, Sir John Franklin commanding the expedition, all well. Party consisting of two officers and six men left the ships on Monday, 24th May, 1847. End quote. The note was dated May 28, 1847, and signed by Gore and another officer in the party. By the way, I believe that Gore wrote the note, but I couldn't find an exact answer on that, so don't quote me on it. Now, a few things. First, this note is how we know that the expedition had circled Cornwallis Island, and that the ships had spent the winter at Beachy Island, as well as the latter's location. Plus, it provided us with the latitude and the longitude of where Erebus and Terror had been icebound this past winter. Second, Gore wrote that the expedition wintered at Beachy Island in 1846-47. That was a mistake, as it had been 1845-46. Third, the all-well comment is encouraging, but as we will learn, things were far from well on the ships. Within two weeks of this note being placed in the cairn, Sir John Franklin, the commander of the expedition, would be dead. Specifically, Franklin died on June 11th. We don't know the circumstances of his death, and his body has never been recovered. Captain Francis Crozier was now in command of the expedition. James Fitzjames, who, by the way, I said last time was a captain at the outset of the expedition, but was only really a commander, would become the captain of Erebus. The death of John Franklin was terrible, but it was not the worst thing that could happen to the expedition. The worst thing that could happen, happened. The ice surrounding Erebus and Terror did not thaw that summer, as 1847 would be one of the coldest in years. This was as bad of luck as could be imagined. If the waters had cleared, the ships could have broke free, and either retreated back the way they had come, or perhaps even continued on and found the passage that they had sacrificed so much for already. Instead, the men of Erebus and Terror would be forced to spend a second consecutive winter out on the frozen ice pack of the Arctic. The unpredictability of the North, as we have seen, could be brutal and deadly. So, the two ships were stuck for another winter, and all the problems that they had been encountering would only grow worse. As we will soon see, the health of the crew deteriorated rather rapidly. There were likely lots of factors. The cold, the lead poisoning, a dwindling food supply and a food supply that lacked so many nutritional necessities. A few points about this. First, remember that the expedition had food for three years. However, evidence shows that many of the food tins were spoiled, meaning that the supply was probably much less. One estimate I read put the spoilage rates at half of the tins, which would have meant that rationing was probably already in progress. Second, the men were not getting anything fresh. Fresh food is critical to staving off severe illness, including scurvy. The local Inuit people did not suffer from scurvy, even when consuming mostly meat. But their meat was fresh, not canned and devoid of vitamins. With that, I want to mention zinc, an element that human beings often get from fresh meat. It is believed that the men of the fleet were not getting much zinc in their diet. This would have caused numerous issues, including an impaired immune system, gastrointestinal distress, and other problems. It was all just a bad cocktail. A lack of vitamin C, a lack of zinc tuberculosis, lead poisoning, hypothermia, and other illnesses, and then the dreaded scurvy. It would have slowly sapped the life out of the men. They would have become weakened and disoriented and paranoid. Their teeth would have been falling out and their gums turning black and hard. They would have ached all over. By April 1848, 21 more men, including Franklin, would be dead, including nine officers and 12 of the crew. 
the death total for the expedition was now 24. It is curious as to why so many officers had died. There were only 24 officers in total, and now nearly 40% were dead. The death rate for the crew was less than 15%. Why the stark difference? Honestly, we just don't know. One theory is that the officers were using lead-lined mugs or something like that, giving them higher doses of lead, and thus making them more susceptible to illness. Or perhaps there was an accident, or something that killed a group of them. Again, we really just don't know. No matter if the food supply was running low, as we suspect, the position of the men on the ships was becoming untenable. And let's not forget about the coal. If the coal was running out, the ability to heat the ship, even for short periods, would have been in jeopardy. The men of the fleet had been stranded on the ice for 19 months, including two winters, and no one knew if the ships would be able to break out that summer. But it's likely that they all knew that they would not survive another year out on the ice. Thus, Captain Crozier made the decision to abandon ship on April 22, 1848. 105 men headed south to King William Island, on foot, dragging behind them lifeboats on sledges packed with supplies. Now, we know all of this happened because remember those cairns that Lieutenant Gore had left notes in the previous year? Well, Crozier and his men reached the one at Victory Point three days after leaving the ships and retrieved one of the notes and added more information in the margins. The added information said, quote, HM ships Terror and Airbus were deserted on 22nd April, five leagues north by northwest of this, having been beset since 12th September 1846. The officers and crews, consisting of 105 souls, under the command of Captain F.R.M. Crozier, landed here in latitude 69 degrees, 37 minutes, 42 seconds north, longitude 98 degrees, 41 minutes west. Sir John Franklin died on the 11th June 1847, and the total loss by deaths in the expedition has been to this date 9 officers and 15 men. Signed, James Fitzjames, Captain HMS Erebus, and F.R.M. Crozier, Captain and Senior Officer, and start on tomorrow, 26th, for Baxfish River, end quote. These parts of the note were written by Captain Fitzjames. By the way, you can see the note on our website. It's kind of amazing to have such a document and be able to read it for yourself. So this information, which again was added to the note that Lieutenant Gore had left the previous year, is the final word we will hear from the crew of the Franklin Expedition. The last sentence in the note indicates that Crozier and the men were heading south for Backsfish River, which today is just called the Back River. The Canadian mainland was only about 100 miles away at this point, and the mouth of the Back River was roughly 200 miles distant, at least as the crow flies. The plan was likely to follow the Back River to the nearest western settlement, a Hudson's Bay Company outpost. But this was a massive endeavor, probably more than 1,000 miles. So, big question, why go south? Why not head northeast? The ships were only about 300 miles or so from Lancaster Sound. They would be able to go northeast to the northwest edge of Somerset Island and hope to find whaling ships or rescue vessels in the Sound. John Ross, who we mentioned earlier in this podcast, had successfully done this exact thing in 1833 when his ship had become icebound. So why not do that instead of embarking on a thousand mile or more overland trek? Well, we can only guess, but the reason is probably, again, food. The expedition was likely running out of supplies, and finding food, especially for 105 men, was not an easy thing this far north. If the expedition had cached some supplies along the route, the decision may have been different, but they had not. This meant that there was little hope of finding decent quantities of food if they took this route. Also, remember that there was no rescue plan established. The men of the expedition had no clue when, or if, anyone was going to come looking for them. This may have discouraged them from wanting to return north. By going south, the men would likely have hoped to find better lands, especially once they reached the mainland. There they would find deer and caribou, 
and lakes with fish and other game to be had. No matter what the decision, it was a desperate ploy, and it would not be successful. Based upon archaeological evidence gathered over the past 170 years, as well as interviews with the local Inuit people, the surviving 105 men were in bad shape, and things would get worse very quickly. The men headed south, and they slowly but surely died. Bodies of the crew have been found all over the island, some in ones and twos, others in groups. Some appear to have just fallen and died where they had been walking. It is believed that only a small group of men even made it to the mainland, and they would die shortly thereafter. This shows you just how sick and starving the men were. The hardiest of the crew barely covered a hundred or so miles before dying. Starvation, the cold, and scurvy are the likely killers. And to show just how desperate the survivors of the Franklin expedition had become, there is evidence that the men turned to cannibalism toward the end of their desperate journey. In the end, we can probably say that the men of the Franklin expedition perished because their ships got frozen in the ice. The men suffered from lead poisoning, malnutrition, vitamin deficiencies, and other maladies before succumbing over time to scurvy, cold, and starvation. It was the greatest Arctic naval disaster in history. 129 men lost their lives. The end. Ah, but that's not the end. You know that. There are so many other questions, questions that we need to answer, if possible. Because the Franklin expedition disappeared, what happened to them became an international mystery, a mystery that continues to this day. So, I want to devote some time talking about how the fate of the Franklin expedition was untangled. Here we go. In 1847, the silence of the Franklin expedition slowly began to build in England and around the world when no sign of the ships emerged. The British Admiralty took a wait-and-see approach toward things. After all, the expedition had three years of supplies, and previous expedition had taken several years to come to fruition due to ships being trapped in the ice. However, Sir John's wife, Lady Jane Franklin, was a forceful and influential voice, urging the Admiralty, newspapers, and Parliament to send a rescue party to find her husband. When 1848 came around, the Admiralty could not withstand the public pressure. Everyone clamored for the government to go find their brave sons. Three rescue parties would be sent out, one from the west, and toward the area the expedition would have emerged had they completed the passage. A second went overland, down the Mackenzie River to the Canadian Arctic coast. And a third came from the east, heading into Lancaster Sound, following in the steps of Sir John and his ships. James Clark Ross led the latter expedition. During his search, Ross set up supply depots along the route and got within 200 miles or so of where Erebus and Terror had been abandoned, although he did not know that. Ross's ships would be trapped in the ice and scurvy would take hold. Ross would be forced to retreat once the ice opened up in the spring. Ross's expedition was probably the only realistic opportunity to have reached any survivors of Erebus and Terror. Subsequent searches were simply too late, as Franklin's men were likely dead by 1850, if not earlier. But no one knew this, and the rescue operations would continue for years, as the desire to find out what happened to Franklin and his men could be described as a national crusade in England. The Admiralty offered £20,000 to anyone who saved Franklin and his men, £10,000 to anyone who offered proof of their fates. All this would lead to more rescue missions. In total, there would be upwards of 40 expeditions, over 170-plus years, organized to find out what happened to the Franklin expedition. Most of these early searches found nothing. The camp at Beachy Island was discovered in 1850, but it held no clues. Despite the years ticking by, Lady Jane Franklin refused to believe her husband was dead, and fought publicly to get expedition after expedition sent to find her husband and his men. She would even use her own money, which was considerable, to finance no less than seven expeditions. However, the same things that bedeviled John Franklin, the cold, the ice, and scurvy, would thwart the searchers and would-be rescuers. 
An expedition in 1852, consisting of five ships, saw four of the vessels abandoned in the ice, and over the years, dozens of men would die in their valiant efforts to find some clue to the lost expedition. Time after time, the rescue parties were thwarted. And then, in 1854, the first solid bits of news would emerge, news that would paint a gruesome picture. John Ray, a Scottish surgeon exploring the Boothia Peninsula, which is east of King William Island, was told some disturbing stories by the local Inuit people. The Inuit said that four winters before, which would have been 1849-50, they had seen a group of 35 to 40 white men dragging a boat to the south on Prince William Island. The description of the leader matched that of Captain Crozier. The white men could only speak with gestures, but the Inuit came to understand that they had lost their ships and were heading south hoping to hunt for food. The men, the Inuit noted, were starving and weak. They had dry black mouths, a sign of scurvy. The following year, the Inuit returned to the area and found roughly 30 corpses. And upon investigating the scene, what the Inuit found was gruesome. Based upon his interviews with the native peoples, John Ray would write the following, quote, From the mutilated state of the corpses and the contents of the kettle, it is evident that our wretched countrymen were driven to the last resource, cannibalism, as a means of prolonging existence, end quote. Ray would also trade with the Inuit, who had acquired many items left by the white men. This included a plate with Sir John Franklin, KCH, engraved on the back, monogrammed silver forks and spoons, and Sir John's order of merit. Ray interviewed other parties of Inuit people, and the stories told about the survivors was confirmed by each group. By the way, some people ask, why didn't the Inuit help the starving Englishmen? The answer is that the Inuit were people who barely were able to provide for their own existence. They worked all year to save up enough food in order to survive the harsh winters. Starvation was a constant threat. The Inuit did say that they traded what they could with the English, but to have had enough food for dozens and dozens of starving men was unrealistic. On his return, Ray would report his findings, which caused an uproar around the world, especially in England. Many refused to believe the tales of cannibalism. It was an affront to all things decent. They argued that these were the finest England could offer, and there is no way these men would resort to eating another human being. The press was brutal, some calling John Ray a liar and a con man, but most of the venom was saved for the Inuit people, called Eskimos. The racial attitudes were appalling, even if common for the era. The famous author Charles Dickens said that the Inuit were, quote, covetous, treacherous, and cruel, end quote, and he dismissed their reports, calling their stories, quote, the chatter of a gross handful of uncivilized people, end quote. Like many people, Dickens argued that decent Englishmen would never stoop to something as horrid as cannibalism. Also, many believed that it was the Inuit who had killed Franklin and his men. United States Chief Justice Charles Patrick Day, the president of the American Geographical Society, said Franklin and his crew were, quote, murdered by the Indians, who had already imbued their hands with the blood of white travelers, end quote. You get the idea. The Eskimos were savages who had no honor and probably killed the brave Englishmen for their nice stuff. Blah, blah, blah. Anyhow, despite all the criticism, Ray did bring back physical evidence and thus received the £10,000 reward for discovering the fate of Franklin and his men. By the way, a few months before John Ray's report shook the world, the British Admiralty declared Franklin and his crew deceased. The date was March 31, 1854. And while this, and Ray's report, mostly ended official searches for the expedition, private groups would continue to carry the flame forward, ever encouraged by Lady Jane Franklin. One of these later expeditions is very important. In 1857, an expedition financed by Lady Jane Franklin set out in July under the command of Francis Leopold McClintock. 
McClintock reached King William Island with his ship, the steamer Fox. He sent out searchers, and in April of 1859, the message left by Crozier and Fitzjames in the cairn at Victory Point was discovered. Here at last was the fate of John Franklin. His death was no longer in question, and the intentions of Captain Crozier and the crew were clearly spelled out. McClintock and his men would find other evidence as to the fate of Franklin and his crew. A single human skeleton, a European with clothes and identification, was discovered on the southern edge of the island, and on the westernmost extreme of the island, a lifeboat was found. It contained two skeletons and relics from the expedition. Amongst the things they found were boots, silk handkerchiefs, soap, combs, and more. This location has been dubbed the boat place by historians. McClintock noted that a lot of the things in the boat were, for the most part, worthless to a group of starving men. In fact, a lot of it was detrimental to the men's health, as they would have had to drag this huge boat filled with junk across the island. Why such decisions were made, we don't really know. Perhaps it was a desire to try and make things appear normal. Or maybe just poor decisions made by men exhausted and suffering from mental and physical distress. While on the island, McClintock would also encounter a large group of Inuit who would confirm the story recounted to Ray five years earlier regarding the fate of the men heading south toward the mainland. They had been weak and starving, and the next year they were found dead. But in an interesting twist, the Inuit told McClintock that they also found one of the English ships near the coast, and had even gone on board. There they had discovered a dead body, but no living people. We will come back to this tale a bit later when we talk about the fates of Erebus and Terror. Another thing the Inuit would tell McClintock was that they found a lifeboat on the island and it contained a number of books. The books were given to some of the children who ripped the pages out for fun. It is possible that these were the logbooks from the ships. These would have been precious, and if Crozier and Fitzjames had wanted to bring any books with them, the logs and charts would have been the most important things to preserve. If this is the case, then it is tragic, since they are lost forever. The ship's logs are probably the only real way we will understand the full story of the expedition. But who knows, maybe some still exist, buried on King William Island, to be uncovered at some time in the future. Over the next couple of decades, there would be other efforts to uncover more of the story of the lost Franklin expedition. Items, now called relics, would be recovered, and interviews with the local Inuit people would corroborate the stories that had been related previously. So, by the 1870s, the fate of Sir John Franklin and his men was pretty much sealed in the eyes of the world. But there are still some mysteries, mostly regarding the specifics of the death of the men and the fates of the two ships, Erebus and Terror. Let's take a look at the former item first. I have told you about the high lead levels found in the members of the crew, but no one really knew about that until the 1980s. And it's a story I want to tell because it shows how the mystery of the Franklin expedition continues to be unveiled over the course of more than 170 years. In Canada, where the people have sort of adopted Franklin and his men as their own, there has been a lot of interest over the years in the fate of the expedition. In the 1980s, Owen Beatty, a professor of anthropology at the University of Alberta, whom we mentioned in the last episode, believed that the best way to understand what happened to the expedition was to start with the very first deaths in 1846, the three men on Beachy Island. Beatty would travel to the island and exhume the bodies of the men and have autopsies conducted. This is how the first clues of lead poisoning were discovered. Beatty and his party would also go to the western coast of King William Island and retrace the footsteps of the 1857 McClintock expedition. In doing so, they would find the remains of 6 to 14 men in a location matching an area described by McClintock. Since then, other searches have been conducted and more evidence has been gathered as sites were located. Hundreds of bones and bone pieces have been discovered and signs of cannibalism have been found, confirming the stories the Inuit told many, many years before. 
From all of the gathered evidence, it appears that the crew of Terror and Erebus tried to head south, but they were simply too sick and starving. King William Island is barren, even today, and there is simply no food to sustain such a large group of men. They died all over the island, and some of the men turned to cannibalism to survive, at least for a little while. The last survivors, around 40 men, appeared to have reached the southeast corner of the island at a place called Booth Point. But most of these men would die before they left the island. Evidence shows that a handful of men crossed over the water to the Canadian mainland, but they died shortly thereafter at a place called Starvation Cove. By the way, there are some very vague stories of white men, including Captain Crozier, surviving amongst the Inuit for many years, but those are just stories that have no support. Now, I do want to mention that there is some speculation that some of the men may have returned to the ships and later sailed south. And with that, I want to pivot to the last great mystery of our tale, the fate of Erebus and Terror. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So, while the fates of the men of the Franklin Expedition have been mostly satisfied, the search for the ships never stopped tantalizing men and women for decades. And with the improvements in technology, the tools for discovering the fates of the two ships was at hand as the 150th anniversary of the expedition approached in the 1990s. Now, we know where the ships had been abandoned, because that information was on the note left in the cairn back at Victory Point. And while the ships would have drifted, the thought is they would not be that far from where they had been left. Well, the ultimate fates of Terror and Erebus will lead only to another mystery, one that still hangs over the Franklin Expedition. In early September 2014, a Canadian team of searchers discovered some items that were possibly from an English ship south of King William Island. The team would investigate, and this would lead to the discovery of Erebus, in 35 feet of water in Queen Maud Gulf, about 100 miles south of where the ships were said to have been abandoned. The wreck of Erebus has been investigated, and relics recovered, including the ship's bell. However, the ship is reportedly in poor shape, and what she has to offer may be limited. Then in 2016, Terror was found, appropriately enough, in Terror Bay, on the southern shore of King William Island. The ship was at a depth of about 75 feet, and in pristine condition. You can find video online of remote cameras going through Terror, and it's kind of spooky to see inside the vessel, but I highly recommend taking a look. I put some links on the website, or a quick internet search will do the trick as well. So, question, how did the ships get to these locations? Terror was about 60 miles from where it was abandoned, and Erebus even further. What happened? Well, a few possibilities. First, there's the idea that not all the men left the ships. But this is contradicted by the note left by Crozier and Fitzjames, which said all 105 survivors had abandoned ship. A second, and most likely option, suggests that some of the men returned to the ships. Perhaps as the survivors realized how hard it was going to be to walk overland, some went back to the ships in the hope that they would break free of the ice. This is supported by the fact that one of the boats found on the island was pointed aiming toward the direction of where the ships had been abandoned, as if it was being dragged back to the ship, to the north and not south. Another possibility we need to entertain is that the ships drifted to their locations. 
However, this seems unlikely. Terror was in a bay on the south side of King William Island. There is almost no way it could have gotten there on its own. And Erebus was so far away, it is not likely that it drifted that far on its own. In the end, we probably will never know how or why the ships got so far south of where they were abandoned. My best guess is that they were recruited. The men knew that they had to walk hundreds of miles to get to safety. And after a few weeks or months on foot, perhaps they realized the folly of such a thing, and they turned around. They got back to their ships, and the water to the south opened up, so they went that way. But eventually, the ice closed in on them again. Or maybe they simply ran out of food and abandoned ship a second time. But that is just my guess. As I said, it is really a mystery, one that may never be solved. In the end, the ships met a deadly fate, being crushed by the ice and sinking in the sea. Perhaps we will find out more someday, but it is not likely. By the way, remember I mentioned that the Inuit had told stories of finding Franklin ships and actually going on board one of them? Well, the odds of the Inuit finding the ships at the original location in which they were abandoned, some 15 miles off the northern tip of King William Island, were slim. But once we understand the actual final resting spots of the ships, more than 60 and 100 miles south respectively, well, that makes much more sense. The Inuit operated in these areas, and it would have been hard for them to have missed seeing the ships once they had been sailed south. It all supports the stories the Inuit told in the aftermath of the doomed expedition. So that really wraps up the story of the Lost Franklin Expedition. I want to talk about a few things before we finish today's episode. First, I want to talk about the goal of the Franklin Expedition, the Northwest Passage. Franklin and his expedition had come to the north to find the elusive route, and the end result had been a disaster. Well, as we said earlier, the Northwest Passage does exist. It is just usually covered in ice. The most navigable route takes you on a similar course, at least part of the way, that Erebus and Terror took back in 1845. You go into Lancaster Sound and then turn south, just like the ships did, but go to the east of King William Island. You then reach the Canadian mainland and follow the northern coast to the west for hundreds of miles, and then you come out at the Beaufort Sea, where you are free of ice and islands, just water. The route through this deadly middle section was found by an Irishman named Robert McClure in 1850. McClure commanded a ship searching for the Franklin Expedition, although he approached the area in question from the western side of the continent. McClure's ship entered the Northwest Passage from the west, but was eventually icebound. He was forced to abandon his ship and marched overland, meeting up with men searching for the Franklin Expedition, who were coming from the eastern side of the continent. In doing this, McClure and his crew marked the Northwest Passage, although they had completed it by sea and by land. By the way, the dozens of expeditions launched to find Franklin and his men would essentially map out most of the Canadian Arctic archipelago, filling in a vast area on the map that had been mostly blank only a couple of decades previous. The first person to actually complete the Northwest Passage by water was the famed Arctic explorer Roal Amundsen. Amundsen traversed the passage between 1903 and 1905. He used a small 45-ton ship, giving him flexibility and a shallow draft. This allowed him to go where bigger ships couldn't. He spent two winters at King William Island, living and learning from the Inuit people how to survive in the polar environment, something that would help him later in his South Pole explorations. Ultimately, the Northwest Passage that so many dreamed about was found to be unusable for commercial travel. There was just too much ice, and the weather was unpredictable. However, we should note that that has changed in the last 20 years or so, due to warming temperatures. In 2007, the passage became open for the first time to ships without an icebreaker. Now, commercial vessels use the route, and it is a growing tourist destination. Even large cruise ships can now use the passage. It is a far cry from when Franklin and his ships ventured to the north some 175 years ago.
So that brings us to the next section of this podcast. I want to talk a little bit about Sir John Franklin, discuss how his reputation has changed over the decades, and put a spotlight on some of his decisions before and during the expedition. In the wake of his expedition, Franklin was portrayed as a brave and heroic figure. He was a proper aristocratic gentleman, unflappable in the face of danger, his ultimate fate no fault of his own. There were songs and poems written about him. Charles Dickens and Henry David Thoreau even penned words about the man and his heroic endeavor. The advent of the modern press certainly fueled this narrative. Back in England, Lady Jane Franklin never stopped promoting her husband's sacrifice. However, Franklin would come under criticism as the facts regarding the expedition were revealed. Some things are very obvious. He had no rescue plan. He did not leave any messages, such as on Beachy Island, as to his next steps. He never set up supply depots, which would have provided a potential safe haven if the men had been forced to head back the way they had come. Also, Franklin and his team did not look or dismissed information regarding previous expeditions that would have helped them tremendously. And this really comes into play regarding food. Other polar expeditions had experienced scurvy, even when using tins of food. Those that had not had issues had lived like the local Inuit. They had hunted and fished for food. They had lived off the land and, for the most part, had avoided scurvy. If Franklin and the Admiralty had studied these previous expeditions, they may have avoided the dangers of reliance so much on canned food. However, in Franklin's defense, he was going with the best advice of the day. Another thing, there was this hole getting stuck in the ice in 1846. Franklin just did not read the ice properly, and it caused them to get stuck 15 miles from land. This was deadly. While King William Island was a barren place, going to its eastern shore would have offered better opportunities to explore and perhaps find open water to the south and east. This would have meant fish, seal, walrus, and other game. Franklin's inability to get the ships to a safe winter haven in 1846 was a crucial mistake. As we just said, they were just 15 miles offshore. By not respecting the unpredictability of the Arctic, the fleet had been trapped. Now, we do have to acknowledge that Franklin and his men expected the ice to clear that next summer, but that did not happen. It was bad luck that the ships would come north during a cold spell that would last years. However, again, it underscores the lack of respect for Mother Nature. To assume things were constant year after years was foolish and arrogant. And that kind of gets us to the impression of Franklin to this day. He is seen as a brave and honorable man, but also one oozing with the basic prejudices of the day. He displayed arrogance and short-sightedness, and it would be deadly. In the end, we have to look at the Franklin expedition as a disaster. 129 men were dead, a total loss of life. And the circumstances of those deaths were gruesome. The mystery of the Franklin expedition continues to this day. Perhaps more relics will be uncovered on King William Island, or things brought up from the wrecks of Erebus and Terra will reveal more information about the fate of the men and the ships. Now, the last thing I want to mention is the Franklin expedition in popular culture. As I noted, the press and the public, in particular in England, but really all over the world, were obsessed with the fate of Franklin and his men. There were songs and plays and poems and novels written about the expedition, Dickens, Thoreau, Mark Twain, Jules Verne, and a hundred other writers all touched on Franklin in some way or shape. And in more modern times, there have been movies and TV shows, and more books, produced not just about Franklin and his men, but the searches for the lost ships and the fates of the crew. Author Margaret Atwood has said that Franklin and his expedition are sort of the national myth in Canada. That attitude has only increased with the discovery of Erebus and Terror. I will throw out one of my favorite books on the expedition, and that is Dan Simmons' outstanding novel, The Terror, written in 2007. The book, which is very long, is a fictionalized account of the Franklin expedition, but has heavy doses of fantasy and horror. 
It's pretty scary and not for kids, but it is excellent. And I will also toss out the TV adaptation for Simmons' book, called The Terror, just like the book. It is a 10-part limited series and quite good. Again, the fantasy and horror elements can be unnerving, but I enjoyed it. Otherwise, there are lots and lots of books and TV shows and articles about Franklin and his expedition. I have listed some of them on our website, explorerspodcast.com, or an internet search will give you a bunch of options. So that is it, The Lost Franklin Expedition. I hope you've enjoyed this series. I know I've had some people asking me for some polar expedition topics, so I hope this has scratched that itch, at least for a while. Thank you again for listening. We will see you next time on the Explorers Podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.